0: Welcome back, listeners, to another episode of Dive In. I'm your host, Simran Sandhu, and today I'm joined by Kanan Saleh, who is the co-founder and CEO of Halo Cars. Halo Cars is an ad tech company that revolutionized how brands advertise on rideshare vehicles. And soon after Kanan and his co-founders actually started the company, they caught the attention of Lyft, who then acquired them earlier last year. Now, as always, before we hop into this interview, I'd also like to give a special shout out to our sponsor, DeliverN, which is looking to make it safer to shop on marketplaces like Facebook and Craigslist. With that, let's dive in. Kanan, so excited to have you join us.
1: Thank you. Happy to be here.
0: Okay. So before we get into the details about your journey with Halo Cars, let's talk a bit about life before entrepreneurship. I know you were most recently studying at UPenn, but what were you up to prior to building your own company?
1: Before I worked on Halo, I was a student, like you said. Before I was a student in college, I grew up in Wisconsin, which is where my family lives, where I went to high school. And then I went to UPenn for my undergrad. I studied uh, management and computer science, so a mix of business and computer science, and actually a little bit of actual science. I also had a minor in biology. But towards the end of my, I started off mostly doing um, business and science. And I thought I wanted to do science related things. I thought I wanted to do biotech or maybe go to medical school or something like that. And then my junior year of college, I basically started taking computer science classes. I took my first one. I just wanted to learn, but I liked it a lot. Then I took more and more. And then my junior and senior year were mostly all computer science. So I added my computer science degree. I have a minor in computer science. I added it all in the second half. Um, Because so my second half of college was basically all computer science. And that's actually what led me to start Halo because I was, I was taking computer science classes. I was thinking about technology, technology startups. I built a few apps in my classes and one of my classes was an iOS development app. And that was at the same time that I was working on Halo. So I actually built the Halo app as my final project for that class. So that those two, those two Halo. And then my computer science classes went hand in hand.
0: Okay. And I want to talk a little bit about that because it sounds like you were taking the insights you were learning in class, perhaps even externally, and you were trying to find different projects and ideas to apply them to. So how did you decide on the idea for what is now Halo Cars?
1: Yeah, I did. So I worked on a number of things and the idea for Halo Cars came from something else. But I will say I worked on multiple things before Halo, not really seriously, but but I was trying to and kicking them around in my head and I would build, build a prototype and none of them worked. So uh, Halo was the, the successful one. And the reason, the way we came up with the idea was I was sitting with some friends and we were talking about, we were talking about how good online advertising had become. So one of my friends received a Facebook ad and about a couple of years ago there was this trend where people were getting scarily accurate Facebook ads. They would talk about something and then you get a fa- It doesn't happen actually much anymore, but it used to happen. You used to say something and then you get an ad for it or your friend would mention something you've never heard of it. And then you go to your computer and get an ad for it. And weird, weird, creepy stuff. So that was happening. And we were just talking about these ads have become so good. It's kind of silly. Like, people would joke that maybe they're listening to you, but that's how good they were. And we would compare that. We were like, wow, these got really good. And then around our campus, there's a lot of billboards. And then there are taxi cab ads in Philadelphia, which is where UPenn is. And we were saying, wow, online ads are so good. And then these ads are so bad. They, they still look the same as they did 20 years ago. And they're still just as bad. And we started thinking about why are, why are these so good and these are so bad. And we, we realized that, well, a lot of technology and data has been put into making online ads really good. And no one had been applying the same kind of technology, the same kind of tools to the offline world. And there was no one doing that. So we saw an opportunity to take the tech and data from here, apply it here, and then we thought we could modernize this industry.
0: Okay, makes sense. And is there any kind of framework or process that you would suggest when it comes to evaluating an idea or trying to decide if it's worth moving forward with it?
1: Yeah, so what you should do and what any idea I had, you... First, obviously, you play around with it in your head and you think about, is this a good idea? You toy around with it philosophically. And you may get to a conclusion there, you may not. I would suggest the best thing to do if you have anything that seems even remotely like it may work to build some sort of prototype and test it out, build some like tiny minimal MVP, give it to some people, see how it works, and then it should be very clear. So when I was working on other things, it was very clear that, um, I was trying to build it and it wasn't really working or I didn't have the team to build it. But for Halo, it was clear from day one. Um, People talk about product market fit and a common term in Silicon Valley. And what product market fit means is that you have the right product and there's a market who wants to meet it. And then these two things go along. And the joke about product market fit is that um, you never, What's the joke exactly? What's the way to phrase this? The idea is basically, the idea about product market fit is that if you don't know if you have product market fit, you don't have product market fit. It's something that punches you in the face and it's very clear that you have it. So you should be getting really strong signal that it's working. If you're not getting really strong signal, then it's probably not working. And it could be not working because you haven't built the right product or it could not, not be working because you're in the wrong market. It could be some combination of many things. So you need to adjust the product and the market that you're going for until you get product market fit. And like I said, you won't mistake it. When it happens, it'll be really clear. People will be like running and knocking down your door to use whatever you're building or buy whatever you're selling. And until that's happening, it's not, you don't have product market fit. And there are multiple stages. So you don't get real product market fit. So when you're prototyping, you might have a few friends who, who are using it and they're using it a ton. Or you may have a few customers who are buying it and they keep using it. And that's like a mini product market fit. That's enough where, okay, well, this prototype is working. I can turn this into a serious business. And then there's another stage of, you need to get product market fit as a business, which means you need to have not just a few customers, you need to have a lot of customers. So there's stages to it. It's not just like it happens once, but that's that's what I would say, it should be really clear. And if you're having doubts and you need to adjust something until it's clear to you. Many times people, when they get started, it's like a lot of startups get started where it's a side project. And they're working on the side and they're doing stuff and they're building things, but then it takes up, it, it ends up taking up so much of their time because it starts doing so well. It's like, well, it was a side project, but then a lot of my friends were using it and actually it took a lot of time to maintain the servers and then more people wanted to use it and I couldn't keep up with it. And you hear a lot, like, I couldn't keep up with it. So I had to go do it full time. That's, that's the right. That's actually the right sequence. Like that's a good artifact. That means you've been prioritizing properly and it's the right way to, to, I would say it's the right way to basically scale up into a startup without taking um, immense amount of risks because otherwise if you just quit your job without any indication then, and it doesn't work, then you're in a weird, weird situation. So most people do, do it like this, they do it gradually.
0: Yeah, I really like that because those are such actionable steps that people can take to move the needle. And you also have a really interesting philosophy on risk, which we'll get into later, but yeah, go ahead.
1: Yeah, it's also, I'll highlight, it's also why being technical is important basically. So either knowing how to code or knowing tools so that you can build things like no code tools or knowing how to build websites, knowing how to build ads like TikTok ads or Facebook ads, knowing how to make designs in Figma or mockups or wireframes. You just need to know how to do things. If you can't build, then if you can't build, then you can't build a prototype. So step two, which is step one is have an idea. Step two is build a prototype. You can't get past step one. And, uh, that, that cripples a lot of teams and a lot of people and a lot of people are like, Oh, I'm the idea guy. And you don't, there's no such thing. Like everybody's an idea guy. You don't want to be an idea guy. Yeah, there's no value in being an idea guy. You need to be a builder. So, and it's pretty easy to learn. So I started off, like I said, my arc was basically, I had an idea in college, I wanted to build it. I didn't know how. I started taking classes and I learned how to build it. And a lot of people actually, you hear about that. So um, Brian Armstrong for uh, CEO of Coinbase, founder and CEO of Coinbase. He recently has a good interview with Gary Tan, who's a VC. And he talks about how it was the same thing for him. Uh, He was basically like, I wanted to, I wanted to build this product, but it was too expensive for me to pay anyone else to. So I figured out how to build it myself. And that's kind of the the right theme. That's like the right way to do it.
0: And yeah, let's get into that too. It sounds like you were the technical guy on your team. Talk to me a bit about your team makeup. How'd you find your co-founders? What's the story there?
1: I was a technical person on my team. So I built our, our app, I built our entire software code base. I also built the hardware. So my team was a combination of people I had already knew at Penn. So these were friends that I'd worked with in the past and sort of like, um, people that I kind of like sniped out because I thought they were good strategic fits. So we had four co-founders, including me, two of them were friends that I had known for known for years and I had worked with them before in projects. So I knew that they were good. I knew they were smart and they had relevant experience. One of them, had worked at an advertising agency, and the other one had worked in robotics. So we were a hardware startup, we were a hardware ad tech startup. So robotics, great, perfect experience, it's exactly what we needed to build hardware. Advertising agency, exactly what we needed to sell ads. And then uh, I ended up recruiting a fourth person who was an MBA at the time, I didn't know him. We actually just like met kind of randomly, but he also had four years of experience working at Google in ad sales. So that was another thing where we were a young team I thought that to sell ads, we needed more experience. That was my feeling. And we had. I found someone with more experience and I took a little bit of a risk. It was kind of like a sniper shot. I barely knew him. Uh, I was like, I want you to come out. We had an interview in SF. I said, we were meeting with investors. I said, I want you to fly out to SF tomorrow and meet with us and take this interview with us. And then we kind of did it like, he worked with us for a couple weeks. And then if it went well, we were gonna continue. And if it didn't go well, we were just gonna stop it. So, and it went pretty well. So then we continued and then he became one, an equal co-founder.
0: Right, and the rest is history. So you get the team together, you build out a prototype. Walk me through what happens next. I know you eventually start working with manufacturers in China too.
1: Yeah, so the, the next steps were when we decided we wanted to do this, I we built a prototype, just like I said. So our prototype was we bought, we we looked on Alibaba, and we looked at manufacturers in China, and we were like, is anyone building what we want to build? Even like remotely similar to what we're trying to build. And the answer was yes. Like there were some people who were building screens for taxis, primarily, and they were for taxis in India or Thailand in random countries, and they were um, much worse quality than we had wanted, but it was something, it was similar. So we bought one, just immediately. We saw an AliBot, we immediately ordered it. And it was like $1,000, so we saved up, we pulled in money and we spent it. And one thing I'd say as well is that when you're building your prototype, you, you need to use your own money, most likely. So you save up a little bit of money and you shouldn't be spending more than like 5K, you know, you should find a way to do everything really scrappy, like make your own logo, do all that other stuff. but for things that you have to buy, like hardware, you have to buy hardware, then put, put your money in. So we pooled our money together. Together, We spent about $1,000, got a prototype. And in parallel, my Faizan, who was my the guy who had advertising experience, he was going and talking to advertisers. He was saying, he, was, he made a pitch deck of our idea. We didn't have one yet, but he made a pitch deck of what we were trying to do. And he's like, this is this, this thing we're trying to do. We're trying to put these ads on top of Uber and Lyft cars, and then they'll be targeted and they'll change. And, blah, blah, blah. And would you be interested in this? So he was talking to all the advertisers and trying to sell it, basically trying to pre-sell it before we even had a product. And we were not able to pre-sell it, but we got people who were able to agree to a pilot. They said, I'm not going to buy it from you. I don't know what this is, but I'll do a pilot with you. We can do a free, just like, we'll test it out. And that was, that was valuable because we got a few decently big name advertisers early on for free. And that was great for credibility. And then that was one thing we were getting advertisers, uh, without even having a product. Um, mostly through relationships. And then a little bit of like, we just talked to actually local businesses around Philly. So one of them was like a coffee shop that I went to in Philly that I talked to the owner. And he was like, sure, I'll run a pilot. And the other thing we did, we started recruiting drivers. So um, we started recruiting drivers and we went to airport lots. We went to, you know, 33 station, which is a train station near Penn where Uber and Lyft drivers sit and wait. And um, we went and we recruited drivers. We told them we want to put this thing on top of your car. We'll pay you. And we got some drivers lined up. So then hardware's coming from China, hardware arrives. Immediately what we do is we put it, we have a driver set up. We put it straight on the driver. It barely works. It's like the product's barely working. And it, it breaks like a million times. It falls off the car once, which is a crazy, which is a funny story. Um, and then we start running the, the campaign for that advertiser. And we mix that. We, we start running campaigns with multiple advertisers and some of them agree to like a two week pilot and then we get a new one. And so we start off with one, then that, worked okay but the hardware wasn't great so we revised the hardware we went to the manufacturer and we said this hardware didn't really work this is the problem can we change this can we change that a few few different things and then we ordered another batch of another four so we could have five total and those four were different so one of the things was like they were painted black that was a big thing and the edges were rounded before they were square Uh, we changed some of the internal hardware we changed the controller board to use different software so we modified it slowly but it still wasn't great so when we had five they were all okay that was like prototypes. And then at that point we started to run, we ran our first paid campaign. Someone paid us to do this. Then after we ran our first paid campaign, we raised some money because we were like, this is working. We're growing, people are paying us. There's more people who want to pay us, but we don't have the big a big enough fleet size. So we raised money from angel investors at that point. And there's also an inflection point in your company of when you should raise money, which we can talk about. But that was our inflection point. We raised money. Then we were all students while we were doing the former. Then after we raised money, we all went to New York, lived in a house together for the time. We ordered hundreds of units and we started scaling up. And then that's when we really started actually running a business and it wasn't a side project anymore. We started going full time and, and moving really quickly. And then shortly after that is when we got bought by Lyft.
0: Okay, there's a lot to unpack there. One of the things you mentioned was an inflection point before you raise money. What would you say is your general rule of thumb there?
1: Yeah, our main, so the inflection point for of when you should raise money is, for most companies, this varies, but I'm gonna give a general rule. A good indication that you should raise money is when money is the only limiting factor for your growth. So typically what that means is that you have people who want to pay you, but you don't have the product for them to buy yet, or you don't have enough product, or you're out of product, or there's some reason why that you can't uh, fulfill the demand that they have, a money reason. And for us, it was that we had advertisers who wanted to run campaigns with us, and they said, we're willing to pay you, but they told us that we don't have a large enough fleet size. They said, you don't have enough cars. He said, five cars is too small. I'm not gonna pay for a campaign for a tiny fleet size. But if you guys have a hundred cars, then I'm gonna pay, I like this, I'm down. So for us, it was very clear that, okay, the only thing right now that's bottlenecking our growth is money. If we had more money, we would buy this hardware, we would set it up, and then these advertisers would pay us. And that's the only thing. So, and that's a good indication that you should go raise money. And it's also a great story it's very easy to pitch that to investors that's like one of when we raise money it wasn't that hard because it made sense and many people try to raise money at the wrong time when they don't actually need it and then they have trouble raising for that reason or people think that they need to raise even though money's not the thing that's limiting limiting them for, for a lot of software startups you can get or any startup really you can get very far without money and so if you can get if, if money is not bottlenecking your growth you should not raise money you should just get as far as possible with your savings or bootstrapping or whatever scrappiness you have, um, get as far as possible without raising money. And then make sure that money is actually the only thing limiting your growth. You should It should feel overwhelming. It should feel like, wow, we're, we're in over our heads. We are, we've are, we got commitments and people are paying us and the thing's barely working. And and uh, you know, you should feel a little bit overwhelmed when you need to go raise money because you've been so scrappy and you've gotten this product so far without money. It's almost like a crime where you're like, I don't think, a lot of people have this feeling as a startup is that, um, they think that they think that their their startup is kind of like barely running together it was It's sort of like a shit show internally, and that's how all startups feel. all startups feel that way, and it should feel that way. It should feel like you're barely holding it together on the back if you're not feeling that way, then you're probably not moving fast enough, and you're probably not being scrappy enough as well so that was the inflection point for us, and that's when we went we went and raised money
0: got it and it was probably a relatively easy pitch from a driver's standpoint too like hey, this is an easy way for you to make some extra money and it doesn't really require you to do very much.
1: Yeah, that was exactly the pitch. It was not hard at all. Uh, many drivers, most drivers are looking for ways to supplement their income and actually all drivers are. So it was super easy pitch. We, were, we had a waiting list of thousands of drivers pretty early on. So drivers were, was one of the easiest parts. There's also a, just a ton of Uber and Lyft drivers. I think people don't realize how many there are. For example, in New York alone, there are 80,000 Uber and Lyft drivers. So, and to give, we had a fleet of a hundred. So just to give you a sense of how small the, how small of a percentage of the total Uber and Lyft drivers we were, we needed. So it was easy. And then nationally there's millions. It's one, it's, it fluctuates a lot, but there are between one and two million Uber and Lyft drivers. So that's a lot, a lot, a lot of, of drivers. So it was way more than we needed. So that part was the easiest.
0: Now you guys are also pretty young. Were advertisers and the big brands taking you guys seriously?
1: Yeah, I mean, they didn't to be clear, like a lot of people did not take it seriously for a very long time. And what you do is one, you take yourself seriously and you present yourself seriously. That's actually one of the most important things. If you have, if you come in as confident and you take yourself and that's the first step, taking yourself seriously. Is step one. Step two is that you basically work your way up. So we did not start off working with Target, although we ended up getting to Target and Starbucks and all these people. We started off working with Saxby's Coffee, which is a coffee shop in Philadelphia that you probably haven't heard of. And they're actually growing now and they're bigger now at the time but they were a small coffee shop at the time we also started working with one of our early clients was a local hotel it was a fairfield inn which is owned by marriott but it was just a local hotel so you start off with small brands who most of the time it's relationship like that coffee shop was the coffee shop i went to all the time so i knew the people there then they were just like sure i'll do it for you and then the the hotel was owned by a friend of somebody who worked at the company at the time. So you start off with just like the scrappiest way possible, get any customers and through whatever means you have a lot. Oftentimes it's like begging people, it's friends or asking for favors and that's common. And then once you get that, one of our next clients, one of our next major clients after that was Cleanly, which is a startup. So once again, this is a startup, so it's not a massive brand, but they're also they're also a funded startup. So it was better than you know the local coffee shop. So we that was the next level up and then uh, after that we ended up one of our campaigns was for the new york botanical gardens and was an agency so that was legit and then you just keep moving up and up and up and the idea is like everybody looks one level below them and then at each at each level there's a group of people and they have different risk profiles you if you're at one level you can probably get the people with the highest risk profile that they're willing to take risks and then once you get there you can usually jump to the next level by like find the person who has the highest risk level at the next level take them and then you can and throughout this time period throughout this time process you are doing everything you can to refine and become more polished like we're refining our pitch deck we're hiring our team we're doing pr we're getting featured in forbes other things are happening that are legitimizing us as well so it's just a slow grind and then it's it's very it basically compounds day by day where nothing happens it's not like one day it's like you're legit but you keep making little improvements day over day and then it compounds over time and then eventually you look back and you're like wow we're actually so much more legitimate than we are before. And now we're getting meetings with people that before wouldn't uh, take a room with us and their PR can help. There's every little thing helps, basically. Every little thing helps and it all compounds over time.
0: No, I get it. I mean, you're essentially describing a gradual build. Now, if I was representing a big brand and you guys came to pitch us, how exactly would we measure the effectiveness of these ads? Like, What would be the common metrics for brands to gauge the success of their ad campaigns?
1: Yeah, we do. There's a lot of different ways. And each brand is different. So each brand has different goals for their campaigns, and then they have different preferred ways of measuring it. And some brands don't measure at all, actually. So that's something we learned is that there's, there's a lot of brands who, I mean, even sophisticated brands that you would think are measuring everything, even uh, a lot of them will run billboards just just for brand value and not really measure it. And uh, Apple runs a ton of billboards. And I don't know their exact um, measurement methodology, but I don't think it's particularly sophisticated. I, think they're, I, I know Apple's strategy for marketing is we want the most premium ad placements in the world. That's it. So they look for the best billboards and then they put the coolest images there. And, and that's it. And they're not measuring a lot of stuff to see if that works. It's just kind of intuitive and it's a brand decision. So there's a lot of companies that work like that. And then the other thing is that the companies who want to measure more what you look at is pre and post primarily so you will that's the most common for outdoor advertising you will particularly if it's a new market or it's a market that you're not big in you will look at what is your sales what is your website visits what are all your metrics in a certain area before you run this campaign and then for us if you target a campaign let's say to the upper west side then after you run the campaign you'll see what are our metrics in the upper west, on the upper west side did we see a boost do we see more store visits did we see site visits did we see conversions what did we see did we see anything and that's how most companies do it. So pre and post is very common. Other companies try to do stuff, uh, they try to do more direct tracking with mobile device IDs, which is, I can tell you like, there's a whole rabbit hole of how you can sort of measure the people around it. And um, actually this is changing recently because Apple changed the rules, but it was using the IDFA stuff. So that was another thing that was common. Some clients like that, we'd love to do that. And uh, we do all sorts of, we, we basically, we pick what our clients would like to see. So. We have our suggested methodology, and then we talk to our clients and say, how would you like to measure this? And we can measure it however they want. Sometimes it's, it's, they don't even want to measure it. It's, it's all based off client by client.
0: Okay. Wow. That's really interesting and kind of surprising too, because I wouldn't have really thought that. And now moving forward to the acquisition, how did that come about? And how are you thinking through such an important decision for your business?
1: Well, the way it came about was not, there's not a huge story. We basically got, they reached out to us cold I got a LinkedIn message. Actually, my co-founder got a LinkedIn message from someone on their Corp.Dev team. That was it. So they reached out. They said, we heard about you. I think it's interesting. Do you want to talk? We talked for a few times, just intro calls where we told them about who we are, what we're doing. They they didn't say much, actually. We, just, we were talking, sharing ideas. We did that a couple of times. And then one of the times they surprised us with an offer. So we met in the middle of that. We met their chief product officer who was like the number three person at Lyft at the time. And he ended up becoming the deal sponsor, which is an interesting thing. I don't know if people know, this is one interesting thing about acquisitions is that at the acquiring company, the way it works is there needs to be somebody who's called the deal sponsor, who's on the executive team, who has the ability to to promote and try and buy companies. So one person needs to say, okay, I wanna buy this company. And then they bring that to the rest of the executive team and they pitch it. So that was our deal deal sponsor. Uh, We met him and it was very casual. We just uh, talked about our product and he asked us some questions. And we didn't think that they were gonna make an offer. And then one of the calls, like I said, they just surprised us and made an offer. And it was completely out of the blue. So we didn't do anything. We were just building a business. We did not, we did not scheme this in some way. And a lot of people ask me, one of the most common questions is how do you get acquired? And they think I have some magic answer. And I said, there's no, the, what's, the true answer is just build a great business and build a, build a great product. And then people wanna acquire it. So there's no magic formula or you should not be scheming it. It doesn't work like that actually.
0: So it was a cold message on LinkedIn. How serious did you take the message initially?
1: Well, I mean, it's the director of, of you know, it was someone at, of, at Lyft who is in the corporate corporate development team. So we took it seriously. We were like, oh, this is very interesting. Lyft is one of the two biggest players in this whole broader ride share industry. So we took it very seriously. And we. it's not like we went in it's not like we went in, you know, super lame and we were just, hey, what's up? We we went in, we knew this was an important meeting and we we presented our we put our best foot forward and we were professional and we did everything we could. But the call was not an acquisition call. It was a, I'm at Lyft, I've heard about this, I think this is interesting. We're just kind of at Lyft we're thinking about it and we're trying to figure out, you know, how should we feel about this? Can can we hear about you guys? What are you doing? Who are you? So it was a introductory phone call where we were getting to know each other. And What we were pitching is we were hoping that they would do a partnership with us. We say, well, why don't we do some sort of partnership? And we were pitching this whole partnership thing. And then they ended up just coming back saying, forget the partnership. We're just going to, we want to buy the the whole company. So yeah, I don't want it to be like, we're not, we were not relaxed or just like loose with how we dealt with it. But we also were not, we did not show up with our, here's our presentation of why you should buy us. We didn't do that at all. So
0: what were some of the key factors that ended up influencing your decision to sell the company?
1: Well, so the reason why we ended up taking, this is also another common thing people ask me, is we looked at the industry, and this is before Lyft ever approached us, is we thought that this ended up, this would have to end up with the ride players, either, either Uber or Lyft. And maybe other companies might want to own it, but we thought it, it would have to lie with one of those two companies because they have the scale of drivers and they have the fleet of, of drivers such that they basically can scale. They have, uh, let me let me rephrase it. They basically have sustainable, competitive, uh a competitive advantage because they can scale on drivers much cheaper and faster than we could whereas we had to go recruit drivers one by one and then pay them a lot companies like lyft who have access to millions of drivers and they own some of the cars i don't know if people know this lyft owns a fleet of cars that they rent to drivers so if you're a driver if I, actually you don't need to have a car to drive for lyft you can just say i want to drive and then lyft will give you a car they'll rent you the car to drive for but they own those cars so because they own those cars they can just put the units on their cars. They don't need to recruit drivers, they don't need to pay drivers, they don't need to do a lot of things that we had to do. So if they can scale at almost no cost, we're scaling at high customer acquisition costs, there's no way we can win. They have a unit economic advantage. So we knew it was gonna end up with one of those two companies. Uh, we, that was the end state of this industry. That was our opinion of how it would work. There'd be no real independent. It had to be with, within one of them. And when Lyft was giving us the offer, like, well, okay, this is it. Like they're entering. So it, ha- it happened way earlier than we expected. But what we expected is happening and they're entering. And we saw this as the opportunity. We wanted to do it with them. We thought we could, we could do it better with them. We didn't really want to compete with them. So we were interested in it from day one. We just had to make the offer work financially, which they did. And it, it, was, it was a good outcome for us. So then it was a no-brainer.
0: Okay. And then fast forward to now, have things kind of played out as you expected them to?
1: Yes and no. So there are some... Uh, there are some other factors that complicated the whole thing, which was COVID. So COVID complicated everything because it rocked our industry because we are an outdoor advertising industry and nobody was outside. So it was a year. It was a very bad year for our industry basically. So, and that factor affected us as well. So we had plans for how we wanted to grow, what we wanted to do. And COVID we had to change all our plans because of that. So, in that, that way, it did not live up to expectation. by definition. We had some expectation of what we were going to do over the next year and a half, and then COVID hits, and we have to change all that. So it did not meet expectation that way. In other ways, um, in some ways, it has, where the resources that we've had have been very good. We've been able to work with amazing hardware and software engineers. We've been able to work with, um, we've we been able to use lifts budget and their resources and a lot of things that have been that have been very helpful for us. So that's why we joined. We joined because we wanted to work with their team. We wanted to work with their resources, which is their money primarily, but also their expertise. Like for example, we used to have hardware issues and we didn't really know how to solve them because we were not a super hardware skilled team. And, but when we went to Lyft, the first thing we did is we met with the bikes and scooters hardware team who were, these guys are like hardcore hardware engineers. And these guys have been doing it for like Twenty years at Apple, and they're just amazing, so, and they fixed all of our hardware issues, which was great. That's like one of the reasons. That's one of the reasons why we joined. So that's that's why I would say yes and no, basically. But the the reason why no, I think, is, is mostly because of outside factors. But that's that's kind of how it works.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's totally fair, right? No one expected COVID to happen.
1: Yeah, and there's always going to be something like that. Like nothing will, is going to go exactly to plan. So this time it was a major one. So COVID threw like a huge wrench in our plans. But if that hadn't happened, there would have been something else. Like there are always uh, wrenches that get thrown in the plan. So that was the other thing I would, I would mention about our startup is that it sounds like all butterflies and rainbows If we just, there was this linear path forward where we scaled and then we scaled straight to exit. And it, it's almost like, it's more of like I would compare it to, you know, stock charts that look like they're just going up and up and up. But if you look closely, actually, there's a lot of ups and downs within that up and up. Yeah, there's a lot of volatility and I would startups are extremely volatile. If you looked at the, the, stock, the, the startup stock chart, Actually, so someone made a good post about this. If startups were traded, publicly traded, they would be crazy volatile. Like there'd be days where it drops 80%, there'd be days where it's up 90%, it would just be insane. And you don't see that because it's all behind closed doors and you don't see what happens inside. But if somebody was looking within a startup and they had kind of my view of what's happening, you'd realize how, how crazy the ups and downs are. The ups are, there's ups where it's like, wow, we got, we're gonna be the biggest thing ever and we're gonna conquer the world. And there are downs where it's like, we have no idea what we're doing and, and we're gonna fail. So we had all of those ups and downs and in the overall trend was up, but day to day there was tons of ups, tons of downs. So that's another thing I would say that if people are expecting some linear trajectory, it's not going to happen and you're going to be disappointed. So um, you need to understand that that's how that's how all progress works. And most people, a lot of people get demoralized with the downs. But if you push through, usually the upward trajectory, the overall trajectory is up even within, even within, uh, you know, even if you have really bad days. So if you can push through those, it's worth it in the end.
0: So what's next for you? I'm going to take a guess here and say, this probably wasn't the last time that you go and start a company.
1: Yeah. So I am sort of like, I have a founder's heart and I will found more companies. Um, you know, I, everyone knows that Lyft knows that, like I've told that to a lot of people. So I don't have short-term plans right now. So I'm I've been at Lyft, I'm building out Halo still. We still have a lot of stuff that we want to build out for, for Halo, we're expanding to different cities, we're, we're doing all different things that I can, some things I can and some things I can't talk about that are really exciting for, for Halo, and I want to do that. Um, in the long term, I, I expect that I will, let's say in like 10 years, I want to have found multiple companies. And I want to have, I want to be a CEO entrepreneur. I think being an entrepreneur and then building companies is sort of the most noble thing one can do. it's the most beneficial to society. And I think it's the best use of people's skills. So I want to, I will found multiple companies. I don't know exactly when, but part of my long-term vision is to have a portfolio of companies that I found. And then I also want to start, I've started angel investing over the last year and a half. And I want to start doing that actually a little bit more formally. So uh, I've been thinking about starting a syndicate and I actually like sort of have been starting a syndicate because I've been angel investing and a lot of people wanted to, a lot of people would ask me, oh, how'd you get in that deal? Could I also invest? And then and I had the idea, maybe I should just syndicate all these deals because people keep coming to me. So, um, I want to do that. And the reason why I like that is it's a very good way. I think it's the most impactful way to me, for me to use the capital that I got from my exit. So I got money from Lyft and then I can give that Lyft back to other startups, but not just one startup, like 10 startups. And then those startups can go and do good things for the world. And then they can have, so I think it's the most beneficial use of, of my capital. So my long-term plan will involve this kind of cycle of, I want to, Found companies and create value for the world and then get money, get, you know, a return from doing so and and get money. Use that money to help other startups create value and then do good things for the world and then also make money. And then use that to create my own startup. I want to keep doing this forever and ever and ever. Just like founding, helping more companies found, founding, helping other companies.
0: Would you want to go start another ad tech company or are there specific industries that you're only considering as of now?
1: No, I completely, I'm completely um, sector agnostic. And the reason why is because I think that broadly, I think technology is going to transform all industries. So I'm interested in the application of technology across all industries. And before before a tech startup, like tech was an industry. And sometimes people still refer to it as an industry. But at this point, I don't think tech is an industry at this point. Tech is just applied to all industries. It's like a layer. Every industry has tech. There's retail tech, there's real estate tech, there's fintech, there's this tech, there's that tech. Everything, all industries will have a layer of tech and software that will transform them. And some got it sooner, some are gonna get it later. But um, I think technology is gonna broadly transform all industries, which is why I'm interested in the applications of technology in every single industry. I also think one of my theses for the next 10 years is that, is exactly what I said, is you're gonna see see software and venture backed startups transform every industry, even industries that were not really venture backed in the past. You're gonna see people who are just gonna look at Industries that are older industries they make money, but they no one has really applied technology They're gonna come in they're gonna be a venture-backed version of it They're gonna use technology in a smart way and then they're gonna be much more efficient than everybody else I don't even mean like I don't even mean groundbreaking technology, but for example, there's a lot of industries that still um, Operate only on email or they only operate on Excel spreadsheets. They don't use They don't use slack. They don't use shared sheets They don't use zoom there's so many industries that just are not using the basic software tools. And if you applied those, those basic software tools and, and um, to some of these companies, you could probably run them a lot more efficiently. And you, know, you could have higher margins, and you could basically transform that industry. So that's one of my theses for the next 10 years of just like, where can applying software to all the nooks and crannies of the world and running them better. So I think you'll see some traditional, like some things that would not seem like venture-backable businesses that will become venture-backed and they'll do really well just by doing the same thing that has been do- been done for a long time with technology more efficiently.
0: In Kanan, what would be your one piece of advice that you would extend to someone who is aspiring to be an entrepreneur or is currently building their company?
1: I would say, so the number one thing I tell people is basically just to get started and to take more risks. The reason why is because most people who don't, start something or don't do entrepreneurship, do so because they think they are trading off against something else. And it's a very big risk for them to do so. So most people out of college is I can either get a job or I can go start start a company. And for most people, I think that's a huge trade-off where if you don't start a job, that's a major risk that you're taking. And what I try and tell people what I try and tell people is that I think it used to be a risk, maybe like 15, 20 years ago. It used to be a big risk actually, because there was not some sort of, there was not a developed startup ecosystem. And being part of a startup was not a prestigious thing. But today today is startup everybody wants to be part of a startup looking at a startup investing in a startup with a startup under a startup on top of a, like everybody wants to be all around startups it's become its own little prestigious thing so if you go and start a startup it is not nearly as risky as it was 15 or 20 years ago and there's a whole ecosystem around it there's there's a whole um, vc ecosystem there's y combinator there's jobs there's other people and you can build a whole career just by doing that And you can also easily move back into the other career paths, the traditional career paths. You can move from startup to your traditional career paths and you can go back if you want to. So um, it's not nearly as risky as as it was before. And if you just get started, you'll realize that usually because you get started and then you meet other people and you get funded and um, all these things happen. You realize, oh, wow, this is actually not that risky and this is fun and this is nice. So that's what I would tell people to take more risks, especially early on in your career.
0: All right. Amazing advice and insights from Kanan Saleh, the co-founder and CEO of Halo Cars. If you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. In the meantime, take care, everyone. Cheers.